Welcome to Digital Therapeutics edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Borohovich. In the last episode, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Mike Pace, the CEO and founder of Palm Health Co. We went deep into commercial frameworks for digital therapies in US and beyond. But it's also super important to understand the journey these trailblazing companies need to take from the regulatory perspective. The complexities of the process, the choices to be made by these entrepreneurs as they're knee-deep in product development. For this, we invited Jason Brook, who is a medical device attorney and regulatory quality advisor. But before we dive in, I was chatting with Chris Bergstrom, president of Amalgam Rx, and the discussion went into regulatory frameworks. What else? And Chris recommended I speak with Jason. Jason and I thoroughly enjoyed our first ever meeting, and right there and then, I decided to pop the magic question. Would you do me the honor of being on the DTX podcast? And he said yes. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jason Brooke. Jason, welcome to the DTX podcast. For our listeners, would love to get to know you, who you are, your background, and how you got to the digital therapeutic space. And as always, would love to learn a small, interesting fact about yourself. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Eugene. So my background is medical devices. Generally, I've been in the medical device industry for nearly 20 years now. I started out you trained as an engineer, biomedical engineer, and went into the industry in a large medical device company that was called Guidant Corporation as a scientist, where I developed algorithms for pacemakers, defibrillators, and neurostim devices, ran clinical trials for testing and proving out those algorithms. And then I became an attorney focused on the medical device industry and particularly focused on what was, I guess, at the time called the mobile health industry and now the digital health industry, and really focused on helping companies, large and small, domestic, foreign, kind of understand the FDA regulatory requirements and help them achieve compliance and get their products into the market and stay out of trouble once they get their products into market. Interesting fact about me, I guess, uh, you know, I'm an entrepreneur in the medical device industry, an inventor. I started my own medical device company about a decade ago and have about 40 patents in medical devices. So, you know, not just kind of a lawyer in helping companies, but really digging in as an entrepreneur and understand the operational issues and which helps me help clients in this space. And this is part of the reason why you're on this show, because it is very difficult to find people that have engineering background that actually have developed some of these algorithms and models and then a path to FDA approvals as well and understanding the legal aspects. And then smack in the middle is the entrepreneurship component of it. How do you get this out to the market? So again, welcome, Jason. I was looking forward to this discussion. And last episode we did with Mike Pace around kind of the commercial frameworks. And obviously in order to get to the commercial frameworks, we need to get to market with either FDA approvals, and or regulatory frameworks before you get to the commercial side of things. It's interesting because you mentioned medical devices and my background back, 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 back in the day was also kind of infrastructure, software, et cetera. And one thing that we all do know is even medical devices have embedded software. Maybe you can walk us through, I don't know, roughly a decade or so of the medical device regulation and how that interfaces with the digital therapeutics regulatory frameworks. 
It's important to keep in mind that the FDA obtained its authority to regulate medical devices, including software and any really innovative application of software in 1976. And really the statute at the time has, in my opinion, stood the test of time and was intentionally very broad, giving the FDA the authority to define within this broad definition of a medical device what is appropriate to regulate and how to do that. Because the statute is written really broadly, it gives the FDA this forward compatibility approach to regulating in that they, as new innovative technologies like what we've seen over the last decade in digital health and digital therapeutics evolve, fundamentally, the framework remains the same and the approach to regulating remains largely the same. And I think personally, that's a good thing. I think it gives the FDA an adaptable approach as the technology evolves. Certainly, the FDA, is, as any large organization and government institution, is probably a little slower than industry would like to adapt, but it's certain that the framework is there. And the FDA has regulated software since the early 80s. If you do a search of the FDA's database for the term software, you'll get a hit of 510K that goes back to 1980. And so the FDA has been in this space, whether you're talking about standalone software or software as a medical device, which is the modern term, or software that's embedded, firmware that's embedded in devices like a pacemaker or bedside monitor or something of that nature, which now is often referred to as SIMD, software in a medical device. The FDA has been regulating these types of products for several decades. Now, certainly in the last decade, the approach to regulating has changed substantially and largely as a result of mobile medical apps. The ability to have a software product that may or may not be legally a medical device on your phone or on your watch or on some other type of wearable sensor and the approach to regulating that type of software has shifted quite significantly in the last decade or so, in the last 13 or 15 years. But like I said, the FDA has been regulating these types of products for decades. And so now it's a matter of understanding the evolution and where we are today and then maybe where we're going because there is you know, more work to be done from a regulatory standpoint to ensure an efficient approach to regulating these innovative technologies like digital therapeutics. And so actually following on to that, maybe just walk us through a little bit. So obviously to your point, you know, FDA has been regulating since I was born, basically. That's a little small interesting fact, <laughs> 1976. And so maybe again, just let's focus in on digital therapeutics. A, are there other options than SAMD for the entrepreneurs going out to market and getting that regulated? B, again, just kind of walk us through what FDA has done specifically around digital therapeutics in the last, as far as you want to rewind back. I don't know that the FDA has done a whole lot specifically to digital therapeutics. I mean, I guess I could step back and say, well, what is a digital therapeutic? We could talk for hours on that, of course, right? A pacemaker arguably is a digital therapeutic, but I don't know that that's what most people think of when they think of the term today. But if you think about it in the sense of a software product that provides some type of therapy like cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, the FDA haven't articulated a broad policy approach to those types of technologies. Today, it's a fairly one-off. They've been, for the last decade, really trying to establish a regulatory framework that 
allows for certain other types of digital health products to define whether it's a regulated or not. You know, like I said, I mentioned mobile medical apps guidance that the FDA put out in 2013 originally. And that kind of articulated the dividing line of like what types of software on a smartphone would be or on a mobile platform more generally would be regulated versus unregulated. There have been other guidance documents that the FDA has put out related to something called an accessory to a medical device. So if you have a software app or a wearable sensor and it connects to a traditional medical device, then that's regulated. Certainly there's been modifications in the context of like general wellness and they're working on clinical decision support software, but none of these really touch on digital therapeutics directly. There's certainly efforts in industry, various organizations outside of the FDA who are trying to come up with a, an approach that would be more specific to digital therapeutics, but nothing at this point that the FDA has articulated that's unique to DTX. And do you feel that that's been somewhat of the challenge for the entrepreneurs and the trailblazers in that space? Because to your point, and I love that discussion, is a pacemaker or any other medical device that actually has software, even if we go under the Digital Therapeutic Alliance definition, it's a software-based intervention. Well, the software in theory is sensing and controlling the device. So again, I don't want to get into the debate of that. My question mainly is around... Has that been the biggest challenge, do you think, for the DTX entrepreneurs and trailblazers? Because there is no specific pathway. It's really leveraging other pathways through that process. That's right. I see frequently in the DTX space that's probably more of a confounding issue is the relationship between software and actual pharmaceutical therapeutics and the convergence of those types of approaches to treatment. And the pharmaceutical world is just a different universe. And I'm a device guy. I have a personal motto. I don't do drugs personally or professionally. And so I know very little about the pharmaceutical regulatory approach other than the fact that it's pretty different than the medical device approach. And when you converge software that would otherwise fall within the scope of the medical device regulatory framework with pharmaceutical products that have a much more conservative approach to regulation, frankly, than medical devices even, it becomes very problematic to really understand what's the path forward for the product. But in a lot of ways, a lot of organizations that are you know, software development organizations who are partnering, you know, strategic partners with big pharmaceutical companies, there's a cultural difference that becomes rather a challenge for getting the products through the FDA or through the regulator and into the market that is probably more problematic than the regulatory framework itself, frankly. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Jason Brooke, medical device attorney and regulatory quality advisor. So let's go back to what are the options? Is there a benefit for the digital therapeutics entrepreneurs and companies to follow the SAMD? And for our listeners, maybe just describe a little bit what SAMD is and following that pathway. Or is that the only pathway, really? Well, so let's start by saying that SAMD, which is short for software as a medical device, is a term that recently, in the last five or six years, was used to describe standalone software, where it's a software app, whether you're talking about a mobile app or on a watch or on a web portal or something of that nature, that in and of itself is a medical device. 
there are only three main pathways through the FDA. There are a couple that are for like orphan products, things like that. Three main ways through the FDA, which is the 510K process, the de novo process, or the PMA process. And the vast majority of medical devices, whether you're talking about SAMD, DTX, et cetera, are going to go through the 510K process, but it relies on to go through the 510K process, you have to rely on existing medical device that has already gone through the FDA. And for DTX products or any other innovative products, if there is not a predicate, then you have to go through either the PMA process or the de novo process. And the PMA process is the default alternative to the 510K. The de novo process essentially says this product is more like a 510k product than a PMA product. PMA is typically for higher risk, like defibrillator type products. And so it warrants less oversight than a PMA type product. And so the de novo process is a mechanism. It's a procedure that allows you to get through the FDA as the first to market. And then ultimately you become what's called the predicate device for followers and they can pursue through the 510k process. So a lot of DTX products and the DTX products that truly fit that kind of the modern definition of a DTX went through the de novo process. Cognitive behavioral therapy type products that have gone through the de novo process. And now those serve as predicates for follow-on products to go through the 510k process. So if you're developing a DTX product today, you're likely to go through either the 510k process, or if you're really innovative, then you're going to go through the de novo process. As always, sounds like being the first is very difficult. <laughs> it is challenging. Well, so there's pros and cons to being the first and going through the de novo process. The con is it's expensive, it's time consuming, there's a lot of engagement with the FDA, a lot of prep work, and the standard for getting through the de novo process is higher than for the 510k process. In the 510k process, you simply have to demonstrate substantial equivalence to an existing legally marketed product. In the de novo process, you have to demonstrate that the benefits of your product outweigh the risks associated with your product, which is a higher bar. You likely have to have clinical data, which you may or may not need in the 510k process. Your testing is going to be pretty rigorous and the FDA is going to scrutinize it pretty heavily. Being the first through the de novo process is a higher bar. That said, the advantage is you get to set the rules for the market. So for example, if you have really high performance, and your competitor's performance isn't as high, then they probably have to improve their product before they can get it through the FDA. Because the FDA will have seen your product first and say, well, this product over here reached 90% sensitivity and specificity, yours is only 75%. And so it may not be acceptable to the FDA for the follow-on product. So there is an advantage to being fast follower to a certain extent, but you have to take on the burdens that I mentioned. I know that FDA submissions take time, effort, and to your point, depending on which pathway you take, there is you know, more scrutiny or less scrutiny, depends on the predicate. And podcast is not meant as a legal advice to the entrepreneurs and the companies out there. But for other listeners that are not familiar, can you talk us through a little bit on evidence generation for the FDA? Does it depend on the paths? You know, Just kind of walk us through a little bit. Yeah, it absolutely depends on the product itself and the pathway that you're going through. So there's generally three buckets that you think of when you think about evidence to support a market authorization. There's non-clinical benchtop testing. So 
to think about it in a hardware context. If you have some electromechanical device, you have to test that the electronics are safe. You know, you're not going to cause some cardiac arrest by electrical stimulation. No zaps. Exactly. So there's that type of benchtop testing. And in the software context, that's software verification and validation testing. Did you build the software you said you were going to build? And does it do what the customer wants it to do? That's verification and validation testing. Then there's non-clinical animal testing, which you don't see a lot of in the software space. There's more implantable or other hardware type devices are doing animal testing. Even though I wouldn't be surprised some of our domesticated animals being able to swipe through some apps these days. Yeah, (laughs) certainly, certainly. And then there's the third bucket, which is increasingly being relied upon or necessary to support market authorization, in particular for SAMD and almost certainly for most DTX is the clinical testing. So where you're actually doing evaluation of your product with humans. And there's different types of those types of testing that involve humans may or may not be a clinical trial. Usability human factors testing typically is not a clinical trial, though it could be depending on the way it's designed. Certainly there's other types of benchtop testing that are specific to, you know, are important for DTX, like cybersecurity related testing. If you have a sensor that's part of your system, you might have to do some biocompatibility testing to make sure that the sensor doesn't cause irritation to the skin or end up burning the skin. Yeah, we've seen some recalls lately, right? Yeah, so there's kind of those three buckets, benchtop testing, animal testing, and clinical testing. And usually for a DTX product, you're talking about a lot of benchtop testing and to a certain extent, some clinical testing that's required. Historically, the 510K process has not required much in the way of clinical testing, but the FDA is moving more and more to demanding clinical testing, even in the 510K context. Certainly for DTX products, one of the most common risks that are identified for de novo products and the DTX that have gone through the de novo process are false positives. And so the FDA is typically requiring some type of clinical testing to evaluate false positives and false negatives to understand the algorithm's performance from that perspective so as to evaluate whether the product has a reasonable assurance of safety and effectiveness. And so more and more, you should expect the clinical testing would be required for DTX products, whether you're talking about a 510K process or a de novo process. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my clinical and commercial partner on this podcast, Chandana Fitzgerald who is the Chief Medical Officer and General Manager of Health Excel, and as her friends call her, Dr. No Crack. Let's see what question Chandana has for our guest today. Hi, Jason. In your opinion, what is currently missing with the digital therapeutic SAMD regulation to uphold it to the same standards as a regular medical device? Thanks, Chandana. That's a good question. I don't know that fundamentally DTX, software as a medical device, are being regulated more or less than the standard that other medical devices are being regulated today by the FDA, at least. I will say there are things that are challenges for DTX products that the FDA needs to be more kind of focused on. And one of which is related to the evidence required for market authorization. And we were just talking about kind of the different types of testing and evidence that's used. And I think There's not a real clear understanding as to what type of evidence would be required to support a DTX. And 
Traditionally, with respect to medical devices, as I mentioned, the evidentiary basis is product specific and pathway specific. But for DTX products, it's becoming more and more clear that clinical data would be required. But we don't know that for sure. And we don't know what are the boundaries, what are kind of the reasons for that. And so certainly the FDA and other regulators could do the industry a great service by articulating that more clearly and coming up with some type of framework that speaks to the type of evidence that's required. And much of the conversation to date is around whether a product is regulated or not. But that's just the first question. (laughs) There are numerous subsequent questions that have to be answered, and we don't know the answers to those. And so the FDA is still stuck on, is a particular product or software as a medical device regulated by the FDA? And then we've got to talk through all the rest of the questions, like what's the appropriate pathway? What's the level of evidence required? Things of that nature. And I'm going to hop in here. And even though you said you don't do drugs earlier, Actually, Mike Pace and I, in the previous episode, we're discussing that digital therapies are held up to very similar standards as molecules from an evidence generation perspective, right? So, which is sort of an interesting discussion altogether. And whether we're talking about molecules and the clinical trials or medical device or SAMD, there still seems to be overall guidance kind of missing. And I think, you know, part of that, I do understand that FDA has been very open in working with entrepreneurs. I mean, we don't know as an industry what we don't know, right? So kind of working through a lot of that. And, you know, if you think about it, the industry has only been specifically digital therapeutics is what, 10, 12 years, right? So it's still a young industry as itself as compared to uh, when FDA started regulating 45 years ago, right? Medical devices. Yeah, that's right. In my mind, and maybe it's because I'm a device guy, when I think of digital therapeutics, I think a more appropriate analogy is to these types of traditional medical devices like pacemakers or defibrillators that are clearly delivering a therapeutic effect, although they're using electrical stimulation as the means of therapy as opposed to a molecule. And so I tend to gravitate naturally to those types of products as analogy to digital therapeutic. And I think more realistically, the reasoning is that, as I mentioned, the you know, the regulatory approach for molecules is very different. The expectations are much greater, even when it comes to testing, for example. I've been in conversations where large pharmaceutical companies have looked at software testing methodologies and said that it's unacceptable because it doesn't meet the standard that you would test against for a molecule. And my reaction was, well, one, that's not what the FDA would say. And two, to expect the level of testing of a software product and the documentation associated with the testing for a software product to meet the standard of a molecule is just unrealistic. I would say that we should look at DTX more along the lines of and comparing it against kind of a traditional medical device therapeutic product and look to that as a basis for kind of understanding what is appropriate for evidence to support the product getting through the FDA or any other regulator. You said the magic word, other regulators, Jason. We've been spending time on FDA this whole time, but would love to hear a little bit of the regulatory developments outside of U.S., as it relates to SAMD slash digital therapeutics? Sure. So I haven't seen anything outside the United States that's specific to DTX. Certainly other regulators around the world have been involved in evolving their regulatory approach for software as a medical device for the last decade or so. 
there's something called the IMDRF, the International Medical Device Regulators Forum, which is an organization that allows representatives from various regulatory bodies around the world to get together and put together policies that are kind of one voice of the various regulators. And they've been fairly prolific over the last decade or two in developing guidance documents that they don't have the force of law in any particular country necessarily, but they're certainly industry understand what the various regulators are thinking. IMDRF includes the FDA, Health Canada, MHRA in the UK, folks from South Korea, as well as China and a few other, and I believe Australia as well. So for the most part, it covers across the globe, the major regulatory bodies. They've put out guidance on approaches to building quality management systems for these types of products, as well as clinical evaluation of software as a medical device and various other documents that are helpful and informative. And then each regulator can adopt and apply either those IMDRF documents or something similar as appropriate. And the FDA has done that in a few examples. But when you look at individual regulatory frameworks, certainly the EU has gone to the most conservative, burdensome extreme than almost any other regulator that I'm aware of at this point when it comes to medical devices generally, but also software as a medical device. And I'm sure your listeners are aware that you know last year, actually just past the one-year anniversary of the effective implementation of the EU medical device regulation. And that has significantly increased the burden for software as a medical device companies as well that are wanting to put their medical devices into the market. Some examples of the challenges that regulation has imposed is one, there are fewer notified bodies. So unlike in the US where you submit your application, your market authorization application to the FDA, the FDA has to review it. There's no choice. They have to review it. Now, they may take extra time to review it, but they have to review it. In the EU, they use a notified body approach, which is a decentralized method for overseeing products in their pre-market stage. And they use for-profit organizations that are overseen by central country-specific competent authorities. And under the old regime, there were 120, 150 notified bodies that you could go to. And so there were plenty of resources to review your product. And now I think that today there are fewer than 30 notified bodies, which means the notified bodies are overworked and don't have the resources to review everyone's application. And so you actually have to be accepted by a notified body. So if you're a DTX company, you come up with this awesome innovative product, you might not be able to find someone who can review your product to allow you to obtain CE mark to put your product in the market. And it's taking years for you know, multiple years for companies, software as a medical device companies in particular, to get through that process and to get a CE mark under the new EUMDR. So that's a big challenge. There's a lack of clarity that exists in kind of the interpretation of the requirements. And so that leads to inconsistencies from one notified body to the other or even within the reviewers. But more importantly, and I think most significantly to DTX companies, because those are process things, those will get cleaned up with time. Fundamentally, the EUMDR requires greater clinical evidence and substantial post-market surveillance activities. So the idea that you would get a DTX product through 
into the EU market without a clinical study is probably unrealistic. It's not going to happen. So you have to go into it understanding that maybe in the US you could get through the FDA without a clinical trial, but in the EU that's unlikely to happen. And then you may be required to run clinical trials post-market to maintain your CE mark in the EU, whereas in the FDA, there's very little post-market oversight of products today. Now, the FDA is trying to get more post-market oversight authority, but today they don't really have that authority. So the EU has gone kind of on the complete other end of the spectrum, whereas the FDA has been, for the last 10 years, trying to be more deregulatory in approach and kind of reduce the requirements. The EU has really substantially increased the requirements. And then you have other areas of the world, folks like the TGA in Australia, Health Canada, they tend to follow the FDA and or the EU in the sense that they'll accept, you know, if your product's gone through the EU regulatory approach, then the burden in those other geographies is largely less. But then you have folks in China, for example, where they're essentially building their own approach. They're looking at the rest of the world and saying, we're going to take what's best from everybody and create our own China-centric approach that has its burdens if you're not a company in China. You know, if you're developing in China, then it's probably a little easier than if you're a US or EU-based company that wants to take your DTX into China, which is obviously a big market and something that's very attractive for many companies. So understanding the different regulatory frameworks and the different nuances is is really critical and you got to integrate that into your commercialization strategy as early as you can which fundamentally means you have to have somebody on your team or a consultant or a legal advisor who really understands this market this industry and kind of the different regulatory frameworks that apply absolutely and uh, i'm sure investors will want to see some of that as well let's flip back to us I know we alluded to a couple of things, but what do you see ahead for the regulatory framework for specifically digital therapeutics and in US? What advice maybe you would even give regulators as they look ahead? So right now, the FDA is trying to solve problems related to AI in particular. It's not really DTX specific, but I can't imagine a DTX product today that doesn't incorporate some degree of AI machine learning technology. So it does have some implications for DTX products, but it's, you know, the FDA is working on that framework more generally. And I don't expect that that will be really resolved over the probably a few years now before it will actually be resolved. And so in that few years, I suspect the FDA will turn its attention to DTX specific issues and over the next five to seven years start to issue guidance documents that are more DTX specific. As someone who has advocated for policies that help industry, you know, mobile health, digital health industry understand the application of the FDA's regulatory framework and other regulatory frameworks, I think it's important that the regulators take these efforts. It is important that they try to stay up to speed with the technologies as the technology is evolving. And in so doing, I would say, you know, one of the things that I I often hear folks say, oh, we've got to change this regulatory framework because it's too old. It's from 1976 and it didn't contemplate these new innovative technologies. And as I said at the outset, I actually think that that's wrong. I think that the framework is broad enough and is adaptable enough to allow the FDA to be nimble for the most part. And so throwing the baby out with the bathwater is not something I would suggest, but rather I would suggest that the FDA identify very specific issues that need to be solved. 
and focus on solving them rather than kind of boil the ocean and try to redo everything because there's inertia in the industry. People understand the 510k process as an example. Some folks are saying, oh, we got to get rid of the 510k process and start with something completely new. And that's problematic for a number of reasons. But I think that there would be a lot of pushback to something that dramatic. And we've seen that in the FDA's pre-certification program that is tailored for software as a medical device. So I would say that regulators, whether it's the FDA or any other global regulator, should really be looking at, you know, what is unique about DTX? What are the problems that DTX companies face when trying to navigate the existing regulatory framework and try to solve those problems, bridge those gaps rather than try to really boil the ocean. The other thing I would say that's really critical is that the regulators should focus on small businesses because the vast majority of innovators are small companies. And sure, they may partner with a large strategic company and whether it's a medical device company or a pharmaceutical company, and they may have reasonable amount of funding. But the fact of the matter is, is organizationally, culturally, the companies that are developing DTX and most softwares and medical device are small companies or are new to the regulatory approach that exists. And so when making modifications, I think it's really important to keep in mind the pressures that small companies, small businesses have and not develop a framework that is uniquely tailored to large organizations. When it comes to advocacy, large organizations tend to have the biggest voice. And so the FDA tends to hear the sound of those loud voices from the large organizations. And I don't know that that's necessarily the best thing from a regulatory framework development standpoint. Excellent. Well, I do hope the regulators are also listening in. And Jason, we started with you in the beginning and some interesting facts and would love to actually finish with getting to know you a bit more. So what makes you get up in the morning? Loaded question as always. Uh, interesting question. Yeah. So, I mean, I started out by saying that I'm a device guy. Everything that I do is really about medical devices. For some reason, early in my life, I understood that medical device development is my passion and is kind of my life's purpose, if you will, and not to be too philosophical. I love the development of medical devices. And in my current role, helping many digital health companies, traditional medical device companies kind of, you know, on the cutting edge, figure out how to get their product through, you know, the FDA or other global regulators and helping them get their products in the market is something that is a passion of mine. And so that is why I get up every day and I'm excited to be able to work with a variety of different companies across the innovation spectrum. And then even, you know, to a certain extent, being able to influence policies that will make those types of products help them get into the market more easily. And that's not to say that I advocate for deregulation in every sense, but rather clarity is helpful and doesn't necessarily mean that it's easier to get in the market, but at least it allows you to understand what's required and then you have a target that you can aim at. And so being able to influence on a macro scale kind of the policies that whether the FDA or other regulators are implementing is another passion of mine, something that I really enjoy and probably don't get to do as much as I would like to, but certainly something that helps make what I do worthwhile and satisfy that itch of influencing the world more generally. Love it. And thank you for your clarity. I mean, this is a very complex topic that we've been able to somewhat demystify, I hope, for our listeners. So thank you for being here and thank you for spending the time. It's been a pleasure. 
Thanks for tuning into the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're automatically notified each time I speak with one of these amazing leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Health Excel, you can find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.